Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Kristen Curran is the co-founder with her husband, Andrew Merritt, of Humble Roots Nursery, a native plant nursery based in Oregon's majestic Columbia River Gorge. The nursery is recognized for its efforts in sustainability and promoting native plants across the wider eco-regions of the Pacific Northwest. After years at this work, Kristen and Drew, as he is known, have authored the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer, 225 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. As we turn the calendar to November and the season to decidedly late fall, we look toward our fall and early winter planting windows, especially good for native plants in most of our areas. I think this resource from Kristen and Drew will be useful to us no matter where we live. Kristen and Drew, I have been following your work and in conversation with you over many years now, and I am so pleased to welcome you once again to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. It's always a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you very much, Jennifer. We're really looking forward to this. So I've given you guys a a basic introduction, a, a loving introduction, because that is how I so honestly feel about the work that you do um, and the the joy that you bring to our native plant world. But I want to have you give yourself a little bit of an introduction and maybe include in that the kind of your personal reasons around the importance of plants in your life. Let's start with you, Kristen. My journey with plants started at a young age uh, in the fields and forests of my childhood in Ohio. I am very lucky to have two wonderful parents, Bill and Debbie Curran, who encouraged me not only to be outside, but to follow my interests and my dreams. That really started with the plants in our backyard and in the natural areas around our house. And there were a number of of key players in that. Um, Jewelweed, for instance, taught me how to use it as a medicine and how to have childlike fun with the explosive seed capsules that I called poppers that it would create. Uh, The tulip tree always uh, had all the insects and stick bugs on it and taught me about the diversity of insects that plants could attract. Jack in the pulpits grew in the forest around my home, but not in the forests um, or around everybody's home. And that taught me about rare plants. Black cap raspberry was something that I went around and collected and made jam of and um, sold at a little stand. Uh, And uh, poison ivy, of course, taught me that plants are to be respected. And then Lily of the Valley taught me just about the beauty of of plants and uh, the wonderful aromatic smell that some of them uh, have. And so there were a number of plants that I considered friends that I grew up with and that really um, started uh, my journey with plants. Beautiful. And clearly, those early plant friends in the company of your parents uh, taught you that you would you should expect to have plant friends wherever you go. Yes, for sure. 
and it and it and it taught me to to see them uh, wherever I was. I love that, and I love the lessons. Maybe they are lessons learned in hindsight, but they are still the lessons uh, and gifts of the plants in our lives and what they show us and teach us. Even if we aren't conscious of it as little children, um, we carry it forward. If we are allowed to, if someone helps us see it, if we see it through the course of our lives. So now I'm going to move to you, Drew. Tell us a little bit the same. Who who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom this would be not only important work, but the work that adds to the quality of your life as well? Well, my appreciation for plants certainly began um, my early teenage years back in Massachusetts, um, stumbling across a uh, pink lady slipper, just one of the most fascinating flowers out there. Um, And I was getting into photography at that time. And now looking back at my old photo albums, it's just full of plant pictures and landscapes, very few actual photos of any uh, human beings. (laughs) So definitely the diversity of and the beauty of the plants just really captured me at that age. And um, since then, uh, my understanding and appreciation for them has only grown. Um, Back in those days, I was working as a gardener caretaker um, for my aunt, who's a landscape architect back in Massachusetts. And um, that's where my actual uh, employment experience began with plants and I uh, really appreciated all that time I got to spend back there um, working in gardens and um, maintaining those. And uh, yeah, my aunt Ellen certainly provided me with that early inspiration for um, working with plants. And as that has evolved into meeting Kristen and developing the nursery and just learning more and more about all the species that we work with and hope to work with and those that we just appreciate in the wild, uh, it's been a, a great journey and one that I'm happy to be on. That's great. And it's a perfect segue into the germination story of Humble Roots, and uh, which I think is a parallel story to your professional path, Kristen. And because I know this started as your path and then became a dual path, I believe. And share with listeners how you got from Ohio to uh, the foothills of mountain ranges in Oregon and the specific place you're in. And, and then we'll we'll continue. I originally went to study marine biology, but I realized during my studies how strong my connection to plants was. So I changed course, uh, studied ethnobotany and agroforestry in many different places and was in Oregon originally living. um, I had come here for school. And then after school, I was living here and I worked in a number of plant nurseries uh, around the state and with watershed groups. And I was I was very clear with myself that I wanted to work with native plants. That was definitely clear to me when I first started. There weren't that many native plant nurseries. And so I worked in as many as I could, again, with watershed groups, uh, working with communities on planting designs for riparian areas and a number of uh, different watershed groups and wildlife refuges uh, doing some restoration work with native plants. And along the way... I realized that there was a whole lot of talking about doing things and that I needed to be doing mm-hmm. more. And so mm-hmm. that's that's really what landed me here in Mosier, both a desire to just stop talking about doing things and, and do it uh, and find a softer way to live 
on the land and demonstrate that that was a beautiful way to live so that hopefully others might do the same. And also another thing that dictated me deciding to live in Mosier is that the Columbia Gorge is just a botanically really rich place. Right. We yeah. have such diversity of plant life here. And when I first came to the land that we live on now, I climbed a tree at the top of the ridge and I could see wet temperate rainforest to the west and um, arid grasslands to the east. And I just knew that I was going to have an amazing access to amazing diversity of plants. So it, it was yeah. a good place to choose to be home. I love that. And I, um, like, it, it kind of gives me shivers when you say to choose to be home, because I think that idea, like you are both transplants from the East to the West and you have made this your home. And it, I think one of the things that I love about your story is that you model not only living more gently on the earth, but on making a contributing and respectful and joyful and beautiful home where you are, which wasn't necessarily your ancestral or even birth home, but you are treating it and growing it like we should all grow home. And that there's a real power to that. I would agree with that. I would agree with that, Jennifer. Yes. Kristen, we are using uh, a place named Mosier, Oregon, and uh, uh, another place named Columbia Gorge. And you are referencing some of the um, different ecoregions of that exact place. Can you give listeners who might not be familiar with with where we are a little bit more of an overview of this really dramatic seam on the west coast of the U.S. and these big regions that come together there because of the geology and history of how the place was formed? Sure. Uh, the Columbia River Gorge is a dramatic place. It starts just east of Portland, Oregon, uh, or Vancouver, Washington. The Columbia River runs between the states of Oregon and Washington and marks the southern boundary of Washington and the northern boundary of Oregon. Uh, this is a place that has been scoured by Ice Age floods, uh, glaciers, and it has created very steep terrain in many places. And we have the Cascade Mountain Range that runs right uh, the Columbia Gorge runs through the Cascade Mountain Range. So we have volcanoes uh, sort of sandwiching us in here. And between with the differences in elevation, in aspect of north and south facing slopes, and in rainfall, which because we have that mountain range running through the gorge, what happens is we get the coastal air that comes in from the ocean, it hits the mountains, it gets condensed, it rises, and it pretty much dumps all of its precipitation on the west side. And this is this is termed orographic lift. And then as, as that moist ocean air kind of pushes over the mountains on the eastern slopes of the Cascades, which is where I live, uh, the ecoregion that Drew and I live in, we get 
what's called a rain shadow where we, you know, we get a, a moderate, a decent amount of precipitation and moisture, but it also uh, is much drier than on the west side. And then just east of us, that precipitation drops quite quickly. And what we get in the distance of about 22 miles is about 16 inches of rainfall difference between Hood River and the Dalles. Wow. Yeah. Which is a lot. Uh, yeah. So uh, between the different aspects of north and south facing and uh, the differences in elevation that are found here and the differences in rainfall, we have a huge amount of habitat diversity and that results in a huge amount of botanical diversity. Mm. So we have snow-capped volcanic peaks. We have uh, deep river gorges. We have... Uh, very arid landscapes, and then we have very moist, uh, water-laden ones with beautiful waterfalls. So it's a, it's a very diverse uh, and majestic and beautiful place. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Kristen Curran and Andrew Merritt of Humble Roots, a native plant nursery in Oregon's beautifully biodiverse Columbia River Gorge. Kristen and Drew are also the authors of the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer, 225 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. We'll be right back after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. Given the many current situations dominating most conversations in our world today, I am daily reminded how proud I am to be a part of public radio. Public radio, in my mind, is like all the beautiful things we hold in the commons. At its best, it is truly local and by and for the people, like public libraries, like public schools, like seed libraries, and even seed itself, often small but capable of so much. With that in mind, if any of you are members, or better yet, supporters of your local public radio station, and that station does not carry Cultivating Place in their weekly lineup, and you think it would be a good fit, please reach out to me and we can chat more about reaching out to your station together. If you think you might be the member of a good public radio station for Cultivating Place, send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. From the California coast to downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, public radio stations and listeners love what this program adds to their lives. And I really do believe that the more we listen to the great diversity of gardeners and gardening out in the world, 
the more we learn. The more we learn, the more we know. The more we know, the more we love. And the more we love, the better we grow. I am looking forward to hearing from some of you, looking forward to working with you on increasing the reach of how we cultivate our places more carefully, compassionately, creatively, and for the commons. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. We're back now to our conversation with Kristen Curran and Andrew Merritt of Humble Roots, a native plant nursery in Oregon's beautifully biodiverse Columbia River Gorge region. Kristen and Drew are also the authors of the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer. As we come back, before we move to Drew's story, we hear more from Kristen about the germination story for Humble Roots itself itself and what ethical sourcing entails. We incorporated in 2005, but one of our big missions in this native plant nursery was to propagate plants ethically. I had seen in my work in other native plant nurseries around the state uh, some really horrible examples of digging plants from the wild. I did not participate in that Mm. and I did not like it. And I left some jobs because of it. And in some cases, uh, entire disjunct populations were being eradicated by unscrupulous collectors. Yes, exactly. It's a dagger to the heart. Mm. And so it was incredibly important and a main mission of ours to ethically propagate native plants. So even though we incorporated in 2005, we had been propagating for about three years before that. Mm-hmm. It took us about three years to to cultivate the stock to actually open our doors as a nursery. That is a mission that is often invisible in our native plant world and so crucial that we, on the other side of that equation, ask these questions, do this research so that we are demanding a native plant industry that meets the values we want to see grown in this world. And so kudos to you for your diligence and your discipline in this work, Kristen and Drew. And so with that, Drew, let's move to you. I think Kristen sort of got this kicked off, as I recall, from previous conversations with both of you. When do you join in this endeavor? Um, Kristen had just incorporated the nursery or just started propagating when, um, when we first got together. We'd known each other for a little bit before that. And I had uh, moved back to Mosier and we were living together and... Yeah, it was still in the early phases of uh, getting the nursery off the ground, and it seemed like a good time to jump aboard. <laughs> so yeah. at that point, we uh, both decided to go full force with the nursery, and uh, uh, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's been almost, I mean, you're closing in on 20 years here, you guys. That's pretty fantastic. Tell <laughs> us a little bit, Drew, about 
how big of a space you are growing on now and what your sort of general open season is for visitors who might want to come through if they're in the area. And do you do any mail order? Uh, we do not do any mail order at this time. Um, we have a little bit in the past and um, I've had uh, mixed experiences with that. And since the care of the plants is our first uh, mission above all else, um, after a few uh, uh, unfortunate issues with shipping plants, we've uh, kind of stepped back from that. Uh, we are a pretty small mom and pop operation um, between our two sites, um, kind of the quote unquote kind of retail space, um, which is about a half an acre of a container nursery. And then um, our propagation grounds up at our home um, is also about just about a half an acre. Um, so it's all containerized. We don't do any in-ground growing um, as far as uh, plants for sale go. Um, so it's, it's definitely not a, a huge nursery, but, um, certainly more than enough for two people. <laughs> right, right, right. And as far as our, our kind of seasonal, um, ebbs and flows, typically our busiest season with customers is going to be mid-March through, uh, mid-June generally. Um, we are available in the summer months, but I certainly wouldn't encourage anybody to plant in uh, July and August out here in the West. Um, and then the fall season, um, we still do have a lot of kind of more homeowner landscape sales, but generally the fall season's a lot of the restoration work going out and the large landscaping projects. And that season generally begins mid-September once things have cooled off a bit and then typically runs through mid-November. Um, and then again, we are typically around through the winter if there are some warmer months. Um, we had a few warm weeks this January and actually had quite a few sales uh, early January this year, which isn't always the case. Oh, that's great. So you just referenced something that I think it's important to point out to listeners is that not only are you growing plants to sell at the nursery for home gardeners and uh, landscape contractor kinds of of jobs, uh, but you also do quite a bit of restoration work as I think consultants and growers and then maybe even the people who are out there helping to plant and oversee some of these restoration sites. Do I have that right? Correct. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah. There's a number of projects that we've worked on over the years. Um, I was actually just out uh, helping with a survey on a, on a recent um, project that was planted uh, fall of 2021. It's an interesting one. The irrigation district for the Hood River Valley, um, they had open channels or um, ditch canals basically for their irrigation system and were losing a lot of water to evaporation. And that has since been piped and um, the disturbed ground that has been left since that was filled in. Um, the watershed group in Hood River um, have decided to use that as a pilot project to turn those kind of disturbed areas into pollinator habitat. So there's a few mile stretch of that pipeline that is now um, planted uh, both with seed from other sources and a lot of plants from us um, for uh, increased pollinator uh, forage. And uh, it's looking pretty good after a couple of years of a uh, couple of winter seasons of um, establishment and things are starting to flower now and it's looking great. And um, there's some other projects with some rare plants that we help with the fish and wildlife monitoring and propagating and planting and um, and a number of other agencies that we work with, as well as nonprofits such as land trusts and um, watershed groups and that sort of thing. And that really speaks to um, one of your stated missions here uh, for the the nursery, and that is cultivating a passion for native plants and their conservation. That this has never been just about producing plants for the industry. To you know, it, it has always been about the two 
parts working in concert, uh, that by knowing them and loving them and ethically propagating them, we encourage people to conserve them in their places while hopefully having gardens serve as bridges and reconnections between habitats uh, that were fragmented or harmed. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Kristen, let's go back to you. Tell us a little bit about what it means to ethically propagate our native plants. Sure. Uh, so number one rule is don't dig plants from the wild. We want to increase and um, complement these ecosystems, uh, not drain them. And so for us, uh, some of the ways that we propagate plants are primarily by seed. And then there are some shrubs, uh, species that we, and, and a few herbaceous perennials that we uh, propagate by cuttings. Mm -hmm. And then there's a handful of things that we collect seed, we grow them out in the nursery, and then we vegetatively uh, divide them. And that works well for some species that, that really are vigorous, have vigorous rhizomatous growth. And it's the fastest way for us to propagate them. But we are only dividing uh, nursery stock that has been grown by seed. So we're not taking any divisions from any wild plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Even with the seed collection, though, also has ethical guidelines. So we don't just go out and collect all the seed we see and say, yay, this is great. We're ethically propagating because that would not be ethical. We live on and steward 50 acres. And there are plant species uh, that we would love to propagate that grow on our land uh, that we've waited 10 years to collect seed from. Uh, because they, we have not seen enough seed production to feel that we would be ethically collecting seed. So that's very important to us, not only to uh, to go by ethical guidelines as far as, you know, only taking a small amount of seed, 5% or less from robust populations of plants, uh, but also understanding the seasonal changes and and that every year is different for these plants and some plants that flower very early if we get really inclement weather and the pollinators aren't out or we get inclement weather that destroys the flowers they don't have a good seed set that year we don't collect seed that year of that plant we do try if uh, there's a really good year of seed production we try to maybe collect enough for a couple years uh, so that we can weather those years that it doesn't feel right to take seed of a certain species. And in general, we are only taking a very small amount of seed because in the wild, a lot of the seed could get predated on, might not germinate well, but we can get much higher germination rates in the nursery. And so we just need a small handful of seed and we can produce hundreds of uh, individual plants yeah. from that. So nice, nice. We're, we're keeping an eye on all of those things and also understanding the ranges of these plants. And when we're looking at a disjunct population, which is a isolated population outside of the normal natural range of these plants. Mm -hmm. And those populations are more isolated and the isolation can lead to variation and it makes those populations a little bit more sensitive. And so we're we're aware of that and we 
tend to not collect from those populations unless they're very robust populations. Right, right. Give us a sense of the range of plants that you uh, that you are growing and that might be available any one season, given all of this that you are tracking and making decisions on each year. And are you, do you sell some seed? Do you sell trees and shrubs and perennials and annuals and vines and geophytes? Give us a sense. So in the generally speaking, the range that we typically work with um, is probably about a 30 to 40 mile radius from <laughs> Mosier from home. Um, but we have collected seed from further afield of um, some species when we're out traveling around. Um, a lot of uh, things from eastern Oregon and Washington, um, kind of more towards the drier side of things out that way. But typically uh, we work um, primarily with species just right from our area. We, we do grow a bit of everything from um, small prails um, up to big trees. Um, granted, most of our stock are um, one or two-year-old plants, so nothing really too mature in the nursery. But um, yeah, we grow a lot of seasonal or the, the spring ephemerals, the geophytes, a lot of different bulbs, and certainly the desert parsleys and, and balsam roots and that sort of thing. Um, we've kind of stopped propagating too many annuals um, as it uh, doesn't really time out too well with our season. By the time they're kind of large enough for sale, we're kind of past the spring season and people aren't planting any longer. And then they're usually spent by the fall planting season. So we found that those usually don't um, end up being much um, much for sale. Um, and we've, we used to offer seed for sale, um, wild collected seed, but um, it was hard to make that work out economically speaking um, with the time spent doing that and cleaning and um, processing the seed and then um, trying to get a price for it that was um, uh, equivalent to our time was uh, a bit of a challenge but we still offer uh, a couple of species of milkweed seed available um, uh, because there has been a lot of uh, excitement about the (laughs) and concern about uh, supporting the monarchs uh, butterflies and so we've been uh, maintaining some seed stock of those species to facilitate that nice nice and in terms of your nursery yard and now i'm getting a little bit esoteric but i'm curious what media do you grow in and what are your container sizes are you sort of on the side of the smaller the container the better or do you do you know, one gallon, five gallon, two gallon, whatever. Um, as far as sizes go, we do work in smaller sizes. Um, a lot of that is mostly just because um, we probably would have larger stuff around if we didn't sell things, but ten, things tend to leave the nursery within the first year or two, uh, which we feel is much better for the plants. It allows them to establish in place. Uh, they don't have to go through the the um, disruption of getting potted and repotted and root pruning and all of that. So uh, we have found that starting with a younger plant um, typically will lead you to a stronger plant in the longer run. Um, you may not have that instant gratification of that you know screen right away, but typically five years down the line, uh, things are can be about the same size, if not a little bit bigger, starting from a seedling compared to a ball and burlap um, field grown and then uh, disturbed root uh, plant. So yeah, we don't do any field growing or bare roots. And um, I'm I'm sorry, Jennifer, I feel like there's another part to that question. I <laughs> what media are you growing? Oh, in? the soil. Yeah. So we've uh, we're fortunate to have a local um, kind of uh, commercial composting facility near us, a company, nice. uh, Dirt Hugger. Yeah. Um, they got started a few years after we did, and um, pretty much since that time, we've been working with them over the years to develop a, a mix. 
um, that works well for us. Um, there's some species that we do end up having to add a little more um, pumice or perlite to, to our general mix, just those kind of things that like a little better drainage. But uh, we are using a little bit of uh, coconut coir for some fiber in there, which um, I'm mm-hmm. not super excited about, but it's certainly a lot better than using peat. But if we could find a nice alternative for that, that would be the one element to it that we, we wouldn't um, like to replace. But um, typically, yeah, it's just a little bit of compost and some aged bark dust and um, pumice and uh, some red sand and a few other uh, little bits of pieces here and there to give it some structure. But um, but yeah, it's a pretty um, it's a, it's, it's worked out really well for us. Um, we try to find a fine line between uh, we want the drainage, but we do want some moisture retention. Um, growing here in Mosier in the summer does require a fair amount of water, so we try to. Um, find that happy medium where we're not having to water every day um, for uh, conserving water resources um, for that purpose. Um, so it's kind of trying to, we've definitely rotted out a few things over the years, trying to find that right medium and uh, certainly dried out a few other things, but um, you know, it's always a learning experience. And especially as components change um, some, um, some parts of our soil mixes that we've really appreciated having in there um, were no longer available at certain points. And so we've had to find alternatives. So it's, it's been a, um, an ongoing uh, a process of developing a good mix, and I'm sure it'll continue to evolve with all the uh, opportunities and challenges that um, <laughs> will result in what's available. <laughs> right, right. But I think that's, um, you know, it might sound like sort of a technical and dry, uh, sort of pardon the pun there, uh, <laughs> topic. But the fact is that this is one of the most important aspects to our native plant world is what what things you're growing in and what then as a result gets moved around with these plants as they go to their new homes. And um, the rigorous hygiene required of native plant nurseries uh, should not and hopefully is not ever overlooked. And I know uh, you all are, are leaders in this, and that's uh, and another important thing for us as consumers to be paying attention to i think i'd also uh, would you sorry to interrupt yeah. you i'd also like to add as far as the soil goes that um we don't use any fertilizers um whatsoever we rely on that little bit of compost in our mix um, which if we do have plants around the nursery for a couple of years or more we do need to repot them just to refresh in that but we have found um in, in especially in our restoration work that um, plants, especially with the kind of um, temperature release fertilizer pellets, um, a lot of our natives, once they go out into the field, if they're kind of um, have that nice, rich, or at least fertilized soil that um, that they were planted in, a lot of the plants won't actually uh, put their roots out into the native soils around them and actually will root wrap themselves in the ground. And as uh, establishing plants in the wild um, can be difficult in this environment. Um, it's really important that we keep our soils a little bit lean so that the plants do want to um, expand into the native soils. Um, so. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I think, and I think, you know, again, uh, this is one of those points of conversation that I think is important to have so that we, again, as the the gardeners who are consuming and and looking for and and driving the market for these things, to shift our expectations of what a plant looks like in the nursery, and that it doesn't have to be overfed or overbred, uh, and and that it's in fact you know the the sturdy, well well fed, not overfed uh, plants that are going to do better in our environments and will be better for our environments once they get going. And 
to switch our understanding of what is an appropriate looking plant at the nursery, I think is an important thing in our in our industry. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So now let's move to the heart of our conversation, and that is the new book. Kristen, let's move back to you. Tell us the germination story for, for the book. Well, we were very honored to be approached by Timber Press and asked to write the Pacific Northwest installment of a new series that they were producing called the Native Plant Primer Series. And they produced the series for the whole of the country. So there's, as you well know, there's there are other versions of this book for different regions of the country. And we were asked to do the one for the Pacific Northwest. So we were honored. We were also, uh, we were also a little overwhelmed because uh, we do a lot for two people. And uh, we were a little worried about fitting that into our schedule. But luckily, we do have uh, fairly mellow winters that has changed a little bit with uh, warming. <laughs> and a little less winter means a little more work for us. But nonetheless, we did manage to fit a majority of the writing into our winter season. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with Kristen Curran and Andrew Merritt of Humble Roots, a native plant nursery in Oregon's beautifully biodiverse Columbia River Gorge region. Kristen and Drew are also the authors of the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer, 225 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. We'll be right back after a quick break. For more with Kristen and Drew, stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So it's been really fun recently to be invited by some of you to call in and take part in your book groups around the country who have taken on the careful reading and thinking about my newest book, What We Sow. This is a particular pleasure to be in conversation with small groups of you who are reading the book and experiencing so many of the thoughts, revelations, emotions, and awareness that I experienced in researching and writing the book. To talk about some of these aspects in our world and what we as individuals can do with them and about them and even for them. If you're part of a book group who is interested in reading What We Sow or has it in your reading queue, please reach out to me. If you'd like me to call in for the discussion part of your book group, and if I have time and availability, I will absolutely be happy to join you. You know how to reach me. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com, and happy interesting reading to you all. We're back now to our conversation with the founders of Humble Roots Nursery, Kristen Curran and Andrew Merritt. 
Humble Roots is a native plant nursery in Oregon's Columbia River Gorge, and Chris and Andrew are also the authors of the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer. As we come back, Kristen shares more about how the two approached the vastness of the book's scope within the great diversity of the greater Pacific Northwest region. That was a huge part of the book was realizing that we were writing a book that could be read by somebody uh, in a wet temperate rainforest on the coast and in an arid high desert, say, you know, in Bend. And that's a huge difference. Uh, And how do we distill all of that down into um, what we thought would would be most accessible to readers of all kinds. And a big thing was we wanted, I've always wanted to get people in through the door. I have always wanted people to be inspired by the beauty of native plants and to not call them weedy or weeds, uh, but to see their true beauty. So we wanted to make sure that we had uh, beautiful photos that would invite people in through that door. Uh, We also wanted to make sure that it was accessible for all readers and experience levels. And uh, we wanted to make sure to include plants, something for every ecoregion. Now, we did, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest is a huge area. It could be from, you know, there's no official boundaries. So it could be considered from southeast Alaska to northern California and then to the Rocky Mountains. We knew enough to know, I think one thing in botany is that you, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was important to us to uh, make sure that we covered areas that we felt comfortable in. And in the book, we do explain that the book mostly applies to Oregon and Washington. However, there are a number of species in there that are found, you know, across the region or in in other, you know, adjoining states. So I, I do feel that the book is applicable from like Southern British Columbia down to Northern California and then parts or in part uh, to Idaho as well. Uh, So we defined our our area. And then uh, one of the things that was a very big challenge for us in what plants we were going to include was the fact that we wrote the book during the height of the pandemic. Mm. I have an incredible library of plant photos. Most of my photos are of plants and not of people. However, most of my photos were you know, iPhone. uh, And so they were lower quality and weren't good enough quality for the book. So we had to get about 90% of our photos we got in that first year of the pandemic, that first spring when we were all washing Dorito bags. And, (laughs) you know, we had no idea. We had no idea uh, what we were up against. And there was a lot of fear and people were at home. Nobody was on the roads. People weren't traveling. Travel was unsafe. And for us, because our business relies on just the two of us taking certain risks with our health was something that we had to be very careful with. Mm -hmm. So we were limited in how far we could travel, uh, to photograph and, uh, these plants. And we did want to provide the photos ourselves. So 
in that case, we are incredibly lucky to be living in the Columbia Gorge because this is a place where not only people and animals can pass through the mountains easily, but also plants. So we have a number of species that occur further west or further east than is typical for their species range. We are also on the southern edge of a lot of uh, plants that grow more north, and we're on the northern edge of a lot of plants that come up from the south. So I we felt that we had really excellent access to uh, these plants for photographing them. Uh, we were very lucky to have access to a lot of plants within an hour's drive of home. So we were, that did dictate slightly uh, which plants we included, but again, we wanted to make sure that the plants that we included were uh, common species, that uh, there are a few exceptions to this, but in general, uh, plants that were uh, abundant uh, in their natural range, and also we took a look at some of the nursery availability of these species to make sure that people could get them somewhere mm -hmm. so that they could ethically source these plants. And now, granted, we're also hoping that this book inspires a lot of growers to grow more of these plants and that these plants become more um, available, ethically propagated, of course. And there were a couple of species that we put in the book that we know are not commercially available, but we think have great garden potential and that we really wanted to inspire people uh, to start to grow. And I've already been getting feedback from people about that, uh, that they're that they're excited about some of these new species. Give us an example of, of a couple of those. Sure. One of the one of the ones that that really sticks out to me is Western snake root, the Adratina occidentalis. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, Adratina, the name you know, the Latin name and the plant itself reminds me of Adratum, which is a group of uh, species, uh, plants that are uh, a genus of plants that are adapted to warm uh, climates and they're grown as annual bedding plants yeah. in the area. I mean, very typical yeah. uh, plant to find in nurseries. And uh, we think that this, that the Western snake root it appeals to us. I think it'll appeal to a lot of gardeners. It has a beautiful habit in the garden uh, and beautiful foliage and interesting flowers, and it attracts a ton of pollinators. So that is one in particular, and it it, it is wide ranging. Um, so that's that's one plant in particular that really sticks out in our minds that we put in there knowing that it's not uh, really known or, or commercially available, but we think that, uh, this, it might encourage putting it in the book would encourage more people to grow it. One of the things I love about this book, uh, I, I love about this whole series and the way Timber Press has set it up is the sort of cultural literacy of how the entries in the specific plants is laid out so that it automatically includes what kind of habitat the plant is coming from, how you might care for it in cultivation, but also its wildlife value uh, with the little icons. And while this might seem sort of simplistic or intuitive at this point in our gardening lives, it is in fact a, a relatively new 
understanding and expectation. So to have it right there available as part of what we should be expecting from our garden plants, I think is beautiful. Jenner, I want to say I'm glad that you brought that up uh, because we did use our understanding of what people are looking for from uh, having the nursery and people coming to the nursery to dictate how we laid out the plant profiles. Uh, Timber Press did give us pretty free reign on that. They uh, they did uh, have the wildlife symbols was included for all of the series um, and excellently so. And we're so excited about that. Uh, but the way that the plant profile is is laid out with the habitat wildlife value sections, uh, cultivation sections separate. That was our design. And we wanted to highlight those things because those are the things that we know gardeners want to know the most. And it, the it's very important for us to put in the habitat and ranges uh, because we don't use uh, hardiness zones in, in our book. And the reason why is because uh, we feel it's more important to look at the habitat, uh, largely because a lot of these plants have different variations that are, uh, or subspecies that are adapted to different uh, habitats. And so we thought that it was most important to, to lay out what kind of habitats these plants grow in and encourage gardeners to use locally sourced ethically sourced seed and plant material. Um, it was important to us uh, to include not only plants for the west side of the Cascades, but especially to include plants for the east side of that can be grown east of the Cascades. Uh, obviously, the book covers the entire Pacific Northwest, so uh, that was always going to be a prime directive. But in general, I do feel that there's a lot of information for gardeners west of the Cascades, which we we call the wet side of the mountains. Uh, but there's very little information for people that want to garden with native plants east of the mountains. And I'm hoping that more information will come out in future, uh, in, in coming years and be available for those gardeners east of the Cascades, because we're getting, a, we get a lot of feedback from gardeners east of the Cascades that are just overjoyed, uh, that there is some information for them. Also, we actually covered many more than 225 species of plants, even though it says 225 plants for an earth-friendly garden. I haven't done a full count, but I know, uh, we ended up in some way profiling many more species than that because in many of the plant profiles we did offer an alternative species for alternative habitats and ecoregions. So for example, uh, where we might talk about uh, Erigeron glacialis, the glacier fleabane, uh, we mentioned uh, seaside daisy uh, for coastal gardeners in there and uh, and then another species that is commonly grown uh, west of the Cascades. And, and then in other uh, entries, uh, we, we mention other species uh, that are either good for alternate ranges or that are also uh, good for that particular habitat or range. So it's, it actually covers many more than 225 plants. Nice. And I think uh, your point is really well taken and Im and important. And it's, uh, in fact, one of the um, kind of catalysts for my own program. And that is when we use these big terms like Pacific Northwest or Northern California, for so long, uh, the primary 
or mainstream gardening resources and media have focused on very, very slim slices of what these regions contain. So to garden in Seattle is not the same as gardening in Spokane. And to garden in San Francisco is very different than gardening in my hometown of Chico. And these internal areas, these interior areas of our world, uh, from the Midwest all the way over to the Intermountain West, have been wildly underserved for so long. And the importance of serving gardeners in those regions and recognizing gardeners in those regions, I don't think can be overstated. I agree. When um, I look at the table of contents for the book, you know, we have the introduction, you you go through the habitats that are uh, typical of the Pacific Northwest, you talk about the importance of biodiversity, about how to choose and care for plants, and then how to use this book. And then there is a very useful section called Plants for Specific Purposes, which I think uh, many gardeners will turn right to. Are there notable findings or surprises to you that that came up in this process of putting this together for other gardeners, knowing how passionate you are about uh, moving the needle on this kind of gardening in our lives? I mean, one of the the biggest surprises for us, and and maybe it wasn't a huge surprise because we should just assume this is the case, but there's just such a a wide range of information out there, and you know every source has their own perspective on things, and even the the sources that we really take as kind of the definitive word, you know, they they can even conflict with their information. So, really trying to you know obviously use our own perspective and experience, but to encompass. Um, all the other information out there and trying to distill that down in a way that that's um, very usable for the uh, reader was, was um, really important for us and, and just very, uh, <laughs> it was surprising how many different takes there are on certain things. And as Kristen mentioned earlier, you know, just kind of the West side experience compared to the East side experience and um, trying to uh, parse those differences um, was both a challenge as well as a, a, a fun surprise. Um, but there's also, you know, one of the biggest things with this project for us was really having a chance to dive into all the, the taxonomic changes that have occurred in recent uh, in um, recent times with certainly a lot of the genetic um, information that's coming out about these plants um, through DNA research and seeing these relationships between um, genuses and even families that um, were unknown prior to this information, um, getting familiar with with a lot of that and just kind of also accepting the fact that a lot of the changes are going to be happening for plenty of time to come as you know, even though our book was published two months ago, it's already out of date in some ways as far as names go. But, um, but yeah, so that was kind of some of the stuff. Um, I don't know if Kristen has anything to add to that. I think that we realized, uh, you know, we tried very hard not to write this from just our perspective, mm -hmm. uh, because we garden in a really specific place and all of us do. Uh, we are all in specific places and what works for us on the east side of the Cascades is not going to be the same experience for everybody. And so we tried to survey as many experiences and information about growing these plants as we could. 
and use our experience to distill out misinformation. And I think that was a little bit of a surprise to see how much misinformation or differing information there there is out there about these plants, uh, about all plants. But even to find that big differences in information in some of uh, the the main botanical manuals, uh, so we call them, uh, and realizing that there's where there is a difference in information is probably an indication of a gap in our knowledge. Mm. And where somebody's saying one thing about this species of lomatium and somebody's saying a completely different thing about it in another area, it could be that those are two different species of lomatium that we haven't we haven't figured that out. That's happening with lomatiums all the time. Uh, even right now, uh, endemic species that grows in the Columbia Gorge has considered to grow all the way up to Yakima, and they're reevaluating that population in, up near Yakima and finding that it's probably a whole different species of plant. So, you know, that was just fascinating for us. We're total plant geeks, so we got into it. <laughs> Before we close, I would love to ask you, uh, especially in light of the work at the nursery, the work in restoration, and then this new book out in the world, what are your most important takeaways or calls to action for listeners in these times? We are unfortunately in a biodiversity crisis. It is estimated that one in every four species of native bee in North America is imperiled or threatened with extinction. And we say estimated because we don't have data for all of the species, so it may be more than that. One third of wild birds in the U.S. and Canada have disappeared since 1970, and this includes deep population declines in common species. These birds are indicators in the precipitous decline signals that ecosystems are in trouble. These are species that we can support with our gardens and landscapes, and we think it's important that gardeners know that they are uniquely positioned at being able to turn fear into hope and that our gardens can be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Uh, we think that it's time for gardens and landscapes to become part of the local ecology again, uh, be refuges for species other than ourselves and complement rather than compete with nature. And then it's time for all of us to begin gardening for more than just ourselves. We think that the way that we term this is seeing the beauty in biodiversity. And that's really important to us. Uh, Drew and I love plants. But the beauty of our garden is much more than just the flowers blooming in it. It is the relationships that we see in our garden that really we find the most beautiful. And by growing native plants, we are planting the species that uh, the insects, the native insects and native wildlife are, depend on as food sources and as shelter and uh, for so many different reasons. It's an interconnected web and exotic species of plants tend to sever those local food webs. But by planting native plants, our garden is bustling, absolutely bustling with activity. And it, it's actually kind of hard for us to get from the house to the car sometimes because there's just something fascinating going on. The other, just yesterday I was watching two different species of swallowtail butterflies laying eggs on our two different species of lomatiums and then going over and nectaring on the ukau and then coming back. 
uh, and it was it was beautiful and fascinating, and that's what we want people to uh, we want all of us to collectively move beyond our fixation on the beauty of form and start to see the beauty of the function of our gardens and our gardens as part of the local ecosystem and uh, to adopt more of an ecological aesthetic and to really start to ignite that trend where people start to see that a garden is more beautiful with other creatures in it uh, while Drew and I can recognize the structural beauty, beauty of any garden, one that is devoid of biodiversity uh, to us isn't truly beautiful. And I'm I'm hoping that that aesthetic uh, sensibility will spread with others uh, because I think that it is the most joyful way for us to be a part of the solution to the various very very serious and silent biodiversity crisis that we're living in right now. And, uh, you know, hopefully as we do that, we also so joy in connecting to nature and our childlike wonder for the world. Indeed. That is a perfect segue into uh, my last request for the two of you. Would you please read the second paragraph in the introduction? Um, and we can split this up into two. So maybe, Drew, you will kick us off and Kristen can uh, finish us up. Certainly. If you grew up on this planet, somehow, in some way, whether you realize it or not, you have a connection to native plants. Maybe it is the memory of an oak tree you climbed as a child or the pungent smell of desert parsley in the warming spring air that strikes a chord with you. Whatever the experience, the connection is deep and visceral. Although many of the reasons to garden with native plants can be very adult, the experience can be childlike, bringing us back to a simpler moment in life when we had time to observe and explore, expanding our understanding of the world around us. Set aside for a moment, the myriad alarm bells ringing throughout ecosystems for the need to change our predominant gardening practices, and remember the simple joy of connecting to nature. Let us keep in mind not only the reasons why we should, but the reasons why we want to connect to the world around us and give ourselves and our gardens the space to do just that. The more you cultivate and nurture a thriving ecosystem in your backyard, using native plants as the backbone of your endeavor, the more your childlike curiosity grows as you learn about the species your landscape supports. Thank you both very much for the work you do in this world and for your joining me on Cultivating Place today. I am so pleased to share your passion forward. Thank you, Jennifer. It has been such a joy watching your work progress and all of, you know, and then, you know, hearing so many people talking about you now and and raving about and loving your program and we do of course and it is just it, it's a wonderful program it's one of the best programs out there and we really appreciate your work and your voice and all that you've done uh for the plants really thank you so much jennifer for including us in this it's an honor Kristen Curran is the co-founder with her husband, Andrew Merritt, of Humble Roots Nursery, a native plant nursery based in Oregon's Columbia River Gorge. The nursery is recognized for its efforts in sustainability and promoting native plants across the wider ecoregions of the Pacific Northwest. 
After years at this work, Christian and Drew, as he is known, have authored the newly published The Pacific Northwest Native Plant Primer, 225 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. Their beautiful photography illustrates the book. Andrew and Kristen ethically propagate many important native plants and have worked on many restoration and pollinator enhancement projects, including rare plant monitoring and propagation. Drew works with homeowners, landscapers, farmers, orchardists, organizations, and agencies developing native plant gardens and habitats. The two of them share this labor of love, which has likewise involved them with innumerable native plant endeavors, including pollinator and conservation plantings of all shapes and sizes, school gardens, backyard habitats, restoration projects, and rare plant conservation. Join us again next week when we're joined by another author, this time the author of wonderful and evocative children's books. Gwendolyn Wallace is the author of Joy Takes Root and The Light She Feels Inside, both of which are great books to grow on no matter how old you might be. That's next week right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support by Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.